Hey, we are so thankful that you're taking the time to tune into Grumlaw Church's podcast. It's our hope that this is an encouragement to you as you draw closer to Jesus. If you'd like to find out more about all things Grumlaw or for more info on our in-person gatherings, you can check us out at grumlaw.com. Now lean in. We're expectant for how God is going to use this time to speak to you today. Well, good morning, Grumlaw family. We are so excited that all of you are here today. Uh, as already mentioned, we are continuing this morning in a series that we began two weeks ago titled Controversial Jesus, uh, a series uh, that includes topics such as homosexuality, abortion, politics, gender dysphoria, marriage and divorce, and, and a handful of others. So, yep, we're just kind of taking it easy this fall. Now, in part one, I spent a solid 30 minutes really diving into the why. Why are we doing this series? And so I I am begging you, if you were not here for part one in particular, I I would encourage you to please go back and get yourself caught up, uh, which you can always conveniently do at grumlaw.com slash messages, uh, or you can find us under Grumlaw Church, wherever it is that you grab your podcast. But but here's the reason why, in a nutshell, uh, we're tackling these topics here over the next three Three months. Uh, very simply, if, if the church doesn't disciple you, that the world sure will. Uh, we, as the local church, we have a responsibility to not only present you with a different viewpoint, that is the biblical, that the God-inspired, that the God-designed viewpoint, but, but also, if I can just speak in a very straightforward way, a, a better viewpoint. God's word, you see, isn't merely a version of truth, it is quite literally the truth. Here's a foundational tenet that, that we wrestled to the ground in part one. It's, it's something that every follower of Jesus has to determine at some point. If God says it to us, that, then it must be best for us. See, God, uh, even though the world would lead us to believe this, God isn't trying to be restrictive. In fact, quite the opposite. He's trying to protect you from, well, you. Uh, we tend to be, as human beings, myself very much included, prisoners of the moment. We, we tend to gravitate to that instant gratification. But, but, but God, because he loves you so much, because he is so for you, he, he's looking further down the road than we have the ability to see. He, he's trying to protect us from making decisions that will ultimately lead to, to, to regret and, and shame and, and embarrassment. And, and rather, he's trying to lead us towards the life that is marked by prosperity and peace and contentment and, and joy. Something that every single one of us are universally searching for. God isn't obsessed with rules. He's rather obsessed with you. And as such, he's preserved these words for you as a sort of guide to life. The creator has given the creation a manual for life, but so often we just kind of chuck it to the side and assume that we know better. When again, in reality, he's trying to protect you from you. And in that way, his correction isn't rejection, it's, it's love. Now, now, before we dive into today's topic, which by the way, the title of today's message is Jesus and the Sexual Revolution. So just in case you didn't hear that disclaimer uh, at the beginning of the service today, if you have young ones with you, we would highly, highly encourage you uh, to get them checked into Grumlaw Kids, a, a, a much better environment for them, in fact, every single week. Uh, I also right here want to address something that we addressed in part one, but I recognize uh, all of you weren't here for part one. So I'm going to continue to explain this here throughout the series to bring clarity. Uh, 
this is the first series that we have ever done as a church where we're utilizing video teaching in a large way. And to be clear, uh, this isn't the direction that we are trying to take you as a church. Live teaching is still going to be the lane that we run in. Uh, This was rather a decision made for this specific series because of the weight of some of these topics that we're discussing. Leadership felt it was important that you would hear these topics straight from my lips. Uh, Additionally, uh, I'm not using this series as an opportunity to hang out at home on Sunday mornings. Uh, If you're receiving the the teaching via video on a particular Sunday, that means I'm preaching live at the other. Uh, Additionally, uh, bring a point of clarity here, uh, video teaching isn't happening every week. It's only about half the series. And as we actually saw last week, there are some topics that we felt could be appropriately addressed by another communicator. We've reserved this avenue of video for those topics that tend to be a little bit more controversial. So so, so with that, let's dive into today's topic. And and be forewarned, uh, I have a lot to cover this morning. So so I'm going to move here pretty quick, especially on the front end. And and I've essentially broken this message here into two parts. Uh, First, I'm going to attempt to appeal to your head. Uh, I'm hopefully going to hit you with a bunch of history and data in an effort to hopefully gain permission to speak to your heart. This is especially, I feel, important for those of you who are just kind of beginning to explore Christianity and this Jesus guy. Then, as just alluded to, we're going to speak to your heart. So if you don't particularly enjoy all of the practical, logical thoughts I'm going to rip through, hang tight. I promise there's plenty of Bible here coming in the latter half of the message. Uh, Let's start here. Uh, There have been exactly two sexual revolutions in human history. Uh, The first one took place in in the first century uh, in ancient Rome, and it was propagated by first century followers of Jesus. Uh, At that point, they were referred to as followers of the way. Uh, The second sexual revolution occurred, and and in fact is still rolling along, in the 20th century here in the beautiful U.S. of A. Uh, And that's where we're going to be parking here for most of the morning. Now, in both first century Rome and 20th century America, promiscuous men were glorified, but promiscuous women were vilified. But the two revolutions approached the same problem in opposite ways. Followers of Jesus in the first century, they took the approach, hey, men should be as restricted as the women. In a nutshell, no sex outside of marriage, which as anyone knows who has ever picked up any history book, it resulted in a revolutionary elevation and protection of women and children and built 2,000 years of flourishing societies. The, the, the second, which took the opposite approach of women should be as unrestricted as the men, well, we're, we're kind of living with the results. And, and so that's where we're going to dig a little bit further here. And so uh, when I refer to the sexual revolution here throughout this message, uh, from this point on, I'm referring to the sexual revolution again, which, which occurred here in America. Uh, the sexual revolution is the single most successful, powerful ideological movement in America over the last 60 years. Uh, Jesus, as most of you know, uh, he gave us the command to love people. In fact, he actually equated that to to loving God. Your your love for God is best authenticated and demonstrated by how well you love the people around you. But, But later in the New Testament, that is the latter half of scripture, we're also implored to destroy false ideologies. So as followers of Jesus, we're called like to kind of live in this, this middle of loving people, but destroying false ideologies. So during this message in particular, uh, some of what is said could easily be taken as like, good grief, Shay. Like you're really going after some people in this room today. I, I promise you, I am not. I am attempting to play my role as the pastor of this church to destroy a false ideology that is attacking and enslaving people that I care deeply about, and more importantly, people that Jesus died for. 
So as just mentioned, I'm going to appeal to your head first. And so in that vein, I am about to right now drown you with data. Are we ready for this? Here we go. Uh, the sexual revolution, it began in the 1960s. Uh, sociologists report that, that happiness levels in America have been declining since the 1960s. Uh, in fact, in that vein, Gen Z is on record as the angriest, loneliest, most depressed generation ever. So, so maybe we should put it this way. The progress isn't progressing. Let that sink in. As happiness levels have gone down, something else has gone up precipitously in American life. That is, of course, divorce rates. Uh, and yes, you're reading that data correctly. The divorce rates have doubled since exactly when? The 1960s. This has resulted in an epidemic of fatherlessness. We find ourselves a part of the first civilization, think about this, the first civilization in human history where nearly as many children will grow up without dads as they will with them. That's sort of an enormous deal since fatherlessness is statistically the number one contributor to all five of the following societal ills. Crime, homelessness, unwed pregnancy, poverty, and you guessed it, future fatherlessness. And, and we look around and wonder right now why our world is so messed up. And, and so dads, I just want to speak to you for a quick moment. Show up for your kids. Lead your kids. Lead your home spiritually. Your kids, your spouse, they need you right now more than ever because of the present cultural moment that we are living in. 80 to 90% of all teenagers will be exposed to pornography uh, with the average age of first exposure being 11 years young. Can I actually really quick footnote here, talk to the parents who are watching right now? Um, your child, and when I say child, I'm kind of referring to anyone under the age of 13. Uh, your child doesn't need a cell phone. And if you've convinced yourself that they do, you are being negligent at best and abusive at worst if you do not put every filter, every restriction known to mankind on that thing. Y'all, I'm willing to admit this. I'm a 35-year-old man, and I put those filters, those restrictions on my phone because I know there will be moments where I'm going to have a hard time saying no to my fleshly desires. How much more for your 12-year-old? A recent study of 16 to 18-year-olds reported that nearly every person reported to learning how to have sex by watching porn. And if you don't realize how devastating that is, that the young women in the report reported being pressured to play out scripts by male partners uh, that they had learned by watching pornography, being pressured into uncomfortable positions, consenting to unpleasant or painful acts, and 25% of them re reported being scared or horrified during sex. One in three teenagers reported to seeing non-consensually shared nudes of other minors. We have another term for that. It's called child pornography. Every, and when I say every, I mean literally all data shows a correlation between sex trafficking, violence towards women, rape culture, and pornography. Today, sexual abuse is at its highest rate in our nation's history. Listen to this. This is incredibly sobering. One in four women will be victims of sexual abuse before they turn 18. Uh, by the way, uh, you can't tell an entire generation that they are nothing but purposeless animals and then be surprised when they act as such. Uh, let's talk about cohabitation. Make sure we all get uncomfortable this morning, uh, which, by the way, has become increasingly acceptable. Uh, the norm, it's encouraged in, in, in our society. In fact, I was reflecting on a conversation 
that I had with my dad a, a couple of years ago, where, where he uh, was speaking of the fact that when he first stepped into pastoral ministry, uh, it was rare to find a couple uh, that, that was living together, but before they got married. And the pendulum has just completely swung the other way. I, I'm almost honestly shocked now when couples come to me, uh, ask me to marry them, and, and they're not living together. Now, now, the biggest problem with cohabitation, again, living together before marriage, uh, is that the data overwhelmingly reveals to us that it increases divorce rates by, you ready for this? 50%. I want to make sure you hear me right on that. Five zero. 50%. And, and, and as a pastor, I receive so much pushback on this because, by the way, as the pastor of this church, I, I, I take the marriage covenant very, very seriously. I, I'm trying to set the couples up who, who, who are part of this church for, for success. I won't marry couples if they're living together before marriage. Now, many couples do correct course in that way. Uh, they move out before their wedding, and then obviously they, they move back in together once once they say, I do. And, and so often people will push back and say, but Shay, you don't understand what we're practicing for marriage. No, you're not. You're preparing for divorce. Dudes that are watching right now, love your girlfriend, love your fiance well enough to not live with her before marriage. And, and again, I get this line all the time, but Shay, well, you wouldn't buy a car without taking it for a test drive first, right? Uh, there's a slight problem with that. The girl who you are courting isn't a civic. She's an image-bearing daughter of the Most High God. The, the, the data continues to show that the more sexual partners a person has in their life, the lower their sexual satisfaction. And as you can see here in this graph, by far the highest rate of satisfaction is those who have had exactly one sexual partner in their lifetime. Uh, one group uh, right now in this cultural moment doesn't seem to be struggling. Uh, the Wall Street Journal, which isn't exactly a, uh, a fortress for theological conservatism, uh, concluded that religious people who marry young without ever having lived together actually have the lowest likelihood of divorce in America. Uh, and by the way, that headline could have just as easily read, experts discover what every Bible-believing Christian has already known for 2,000 years. Now, let me make sure that nobody misses this. All of what I've just shared is obviously horrifying. But, but keep in mind, this was all done in the name of progress. And we ended up with the angriest, loneliest, most depressed, least parented generation in our nation's history. A, a lot of what the world would dub progress, scripture would call decay. And it doesn't need to be affirmed. It needs to be resisted and opposed. And what's so interesting is over these last, let's just say three years, our world is starting to wake up, starting to realize that the sexual revolution, though it promised progress, liberation, and a personal satisfaction, it is actually delivering profound misery and brokenness. I'm going to rip through right now, rapid fire, some headlines from secular publications acknowledging that the sexual revolution has failed and is especially harming to women. Uh, and again, keep in mind, th these aren't like Christian articles. Th these are some of what would be labeled some of the most progressive publications, uh, again, that we have access to. The first one, it comes from a publication called The Critic, uh, which is found in Great Britain. Uh, the title here, and I'm going to present these here without comment, that the sexual revolution has failed Generation X women. More freedom won't cure the disease. The next one we find from the Washington Post. It says, consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. 
Uh, This one we find from the Times and the Sunday Times. It says, women have been betrayed by a culture of porn gone wild. Uh, The tweet from the author, the sexual revolution was supposed to liberate women, yet the tragic life of Marilyn Monroe and the nightmarish world of violent pornography, which today's young women must navigate, suggest otherwise. Uh, From the Atlantic, consent was never enough. A generation of Americans have tried a new form of sexual morality and haven't just found it wanting, they've found it profoundly harmful. Uh, Another one from Great Britain from an article um, from a publication titled Unheard. Uh, The title of the article, The Week the Trans Spell Was Broken. I I have written again from the author, I have written for Unheard about the week in which it was finally acknowledged that extreme gender ideology doesn't make sense and doesn't work. From the New York Times, dating is broken. Uh, going retro could fix it. Uh, and what they mean by retro is a more biblical view uh, on marriage and sexual cohabitation. Uh, and then the last example here I have from uh, an author titled Louise Perry. She wrote a book called The Case Against the Sexual uh, Revolution. I want you to keep in mind here, this author, uh, she was at one point a secular progressive feminist from, from Britain. Again, let that sink in. A secular progressive feminist from Britain, uh, and at one point in her life was a staunch advocate for the ideals of the sexual revolution. Uh, But while, and she discloses this as she writes this book, but while working in a rape crisis center, she recognized that the sexual revolution was crushing women. And she has since switched sides, and those are my words, uh, and is now leading a feminist movement that is aggressively attacking the ideals of the sexual revolution. Uh, in fact, in her book, uh, her, her revolutionary solution, and again, I, I'm summarizing kind of here the book for you, monogamous marriage. And, and she acknowledges that, that it's clunky, that it's not perfect, but, but it's certainly a heck of a lot better than what we're currently experiencing. Uh, so many people, and, and not just Christians, by the way, are, are recognizing and more importantly experiencing that, that maybe God's design really is best. That maybe if, if God says it to us, then, then it must be best for us. Don't miss this, especially those of you who are, who are new to this whole Christianity thing. I'm making the transition to, to your heart now. We're, we're done with all the data, all the headlines. I recognize that this is a lot to process this morning. God's commands are, are not prison bars. that They're train tracks for, for joy, purpose, contentment, peace. And so escaping them isn't freedom, it's a train wreck. That the heart of your heavenly father is never one to restrict you, to to repress you, to to, to keep you from experiencing happiness. No, no, it would be Jesus himself who who would tell us, I I have come that they, and when he says they, he's talking about you and I may may have life and and have it to the full. He's trying to protect you. He, in fact, cares enough about you to give you a heads up about this stuff. And again, I challenge us to think about how kind, how loving is that? I alluded to this earlier. God doesn't give commands because he loves rules. God gives commands because he loves you. When God says don't, what he's actually saying is don't hurt yourself. Don't undermine your future. Don't sacrifice ultimate for for immediate. I've used this analogy before, uh, and it illustrates the point so well, so you'll have to forgive me if uh, you remember it well here, but um, if you've never operated a chainsaw before here, right, I got a nice steel chainsaw, good brand, Um, if you've never operated one before, uh, 
you know that this can be a pretty intimidating device, and, and it doesn't take exactly the smartest person on the block to, to figure out that, man, if you don't use this thing according to the manufacturer and the recommendations, um, you could cause some serious damage to yourself as, as well as the, the people around you. So, so, so you probably all are smart enough to know that, that, that if a manual is included with a chainsaw, it's not there to restrict you. Again, it's there to protect you. And if you've never operated one before, well, you pick up and, and you read through every page of that manual because, again, you don't want to cause undulled damage to you and, and again, the people around you. And, and church, this is exactly what God is doing with this good book. He has preserved this text for us. And, and again, it's not intended to restrict but rather protect. He's literally given us a manual for life and more pertinent to this conversation, a manual for, for sex. And so often we just chuck it to the side, assuming that we know better. Now, now as mentioned here at the top of this message, that the sexual revolution is the most significant revolution on American soil. And I'll actually take it a step further. Uh, and I'm going to explain this. It's becoming the predominant religion in our society. Remember we spoke about last week, whatever God creates, Satan counterfeits. God birthed a Jesus revolution, Satan birthed a sexual revolution. Let me kind of help us connect these dots real quick. Uh, We look here to a letter titled Romans. Paul was writing this to the early Christian church in Rome, as I've been talking about here over the last couple of weeks, a society, honestly, not totally unlike what we're currently experiencing them. And, And he's speaking to the point that so often when we uh, begin to abandon God, we typically take the next closest thing and, and put it in its place, namely human beings created in God's image. So, so this is what Paul is speaking to right here. He says, so God abandoned them, speaking of them, like you and I, human beings, to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. As a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. So, so they worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself. I'm gonna read that one more time. They worshiped and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise, amen. Track again with me here. Once people discard worshiping God, and again, this is not unique to this cultural moment at all. This is all throughout human history. We naturally gravitate towards the next closest thing, again, namely human beings created in the image of God via sexuality. This has been happening throughout human history. And they, again, they function almost as opposite religions. Think about this. that The sexual revolution says it's all about self-expression. Jesus says it's all about self-denial, right? He tells us to uh, deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him daily. That the sexual revolution says to worship sex. Scripture is actually super clear that anytime we build our identity on anything or anyone but Jesus, it always falls woefully short. So, So scripture says, don't worship sex, worship God, the only one who can actually deliver on true joy, true purpose, true contentment. The sexual revolution is all about pride. We have an entire month for it. Jesus was all about humility. The sexual revolution declares, I was born this way. Jesus tells us that we can be born again, that we can experience an entirely new life in Christ. Uh, Second Corinthians teaches us that the old is gone, the new is here. We are a new creation. That the sexual revolution says, I'm perfect the way that I am. Jesus teaches us that we are all sinners desperately in need of God's grace. The sexual revolution promotes coming out. And when you think about it, it's sort of an anti-baptism. Jesus teaches us through baptism to go public with our faith and our newfound identity in him. 
The sexual revolution is all about tolerance, being okay with things. Jesus teaches us repentance. He's like, we, we got to change some things. You, you track with me? It, it is functioning as a religion. Super practically, think about it this way. And my friend Josh Howerton pointed this out, and it's like brilliant. Each letter of the LGBTQIA, it functions as a different denomination of the sexual revolution, the sexual religion. And again, he makes such a wise observation here. Why does this movement seem so hell-bent on spreading their message to children? Because every religion eventually gets into children's ministry. So here are the two tenets here of the sexual revolution. Number one, your sexual desires are your core identity. And number two, fulfillment is found in unrestricted sexual expression. Let's take a look at the first tenet here first. Think about it. If you experience same-sex attraction here in this cultural moment, it's never said you're experiencing same-sex attraction. In fact, to some people, even me saying those words right now, it sounds combative. Rather, you're told you are gay. Your desire is your core identity. And everything's going to be built off of that. This is really important because our activity, hang on to this, our activity is always determined by our identity. So so the evil one knows if you can build your identity on your sexual expression, on your sexuality, then he'll control your activity. And here's the biggest problem with this. If you build your identity off of a specific desire, think about this very practically, every single one of us experience thousands of desires throughout our lives that, mind you, are constantly sifting. They're constantly changing. And every one of us, we are regularly deciding which desires we express and which ones we are going to control. So if we don't have a grid outside of culture, because just in case you haven't noticed, culture is constantly changing, If we don't have a grid outside of culture where we filter the desires of our heart, we'll always become who culture says that we should be. So each of us, we desperately need that standard outside of human culture. And around here, obviously we are a Christian church. We would advocate for the Bible. That is the scriptures. We need that standard outside of human culture by which we can sift the impulses we experience and from there decide which we control and and which we express. And so again, if you're tracking with me, if you're not committed to the authority of scripture, you will always be a slave to whatever sounds right. That the father of lies wants to convince you that you are your desires, that your activity is your identity. But, but church, let me speak to each of your hearts right now. Only Jesus gets to tell you who you are. And when he came down to this earth and died, then rose from the grave for you, he declared you are worthy. Your identity is a child of the living God. You aren't defined by your sexual desires. You're defined by your savior. Root your identity in him. Which brings us here to point two, that fulfillment is found in unrestricted sexual expression which very practically sounds like, man, if we, could, if we could just get rid of these old, antiquated, repressive rules around sexuality, then everyone would be liberated and free and happy and society would all be well. And before today, some of you found yourself wholeheartedly agreeing with that because again, that's all you've ever heard. As we often mention, there is constant tension between the world, that is what our society would propagate, and the word that the world and the word. 
And the decision that every single person on this planet has to make is, will I allow what God says in his word to overrule what people say in the world, or will I let what people say in the world overrule what God says in his word? So, and here's where we're going to land the plane this morning. If this revolution isn't delivering on its promises, that is, the progress isn't progressing, if God's way really is the best way, if God really is trying to protect us, then what type of loving counsel does God offer to us in this area? And I picked the passage here. I felt like we were being led to the passage this morning that is incredibly, incredibly simple. It's another one of Paul's letters, this one that he writes to the early Christian church in Corinth. Very, very simply, he says, flee from sexual immorality. Let me read that one more time. Flee from sexual immorality. And then he continues. He says, all other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. And if you have a hard time getting your head around it, think about that this way. Any single uh, person who who has ever uh, committed quote-unquote sexual sin, you know that there was something deeper that happened there. So scripture goes out of its way to tell us that all sin is equal and that all of it separates us from God, but the consequences of all sin are not the same. And scripture is imploring us, it's begging us to recognize the fact that sexual sin is unlike any other sin in the damage that it causes not only to you, your body, but also the people around you. And then he goes on and says, do you not know? Now I want you to keep in mind, he's not saying this to be a smart aleck. He's saying this because he recognized that some of that original audience simply didn't know this, which stands to reason that there's probably some people who are listening right now who, who don't know this. He says, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? That is, if you have put your faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells within you. So he says, who is in you, whom whom you have received from God. You're not your own. Now that right there is about the most controversial thing from a societal standpoint that I'll say this morning. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now now this word sexual immorality uh, that we see pop up all over scripture, uh, it comes from a Greek word, porneia, which is actually where we get our English word pornography. Uh, When writers in scripture use this term porneia, again, translated in our English Bibles as sexual immorality, it's forbidding all sexual expression outside of God's design, which is outlined to us in Genesis chapter 2. It's forbidding any sexual expression outside of the relationship between one man and one woman in a lifetime marriage covenant. Now, I I know how a lot of our minds work. Uh, I'm like this as well. We often try to find loopholes. So I'm going to list very specifically right now what, what, what scripture would be telling us to flee from. It's about to get a little squirmy here for a second. Pornography, cohabitation before marriage, oral sex outside of marriage, same-sex sexual expression, polygamy, polyamory, masturbation, sexualizing yourself with your dress, uh, meaning you're intentionally posting provocative photos for the, for the desire to get those sexual likes, adultery, we did everything but, lust of the eyes, fantasizing. And your creator's advice on this, he's like, don't fight. Now, it's really interesting because the only time in scripture when we're talking about temptation and sin where we're told to literally flee. Other times, and you'll pick up on this when you pick up and read the Bible for yourself, um, other times we're told to stand guard. You know, God goes before you, with you, after you. you use the scriptures as, as, as your tool. Like, like, told like, be on guard. But when it comes to sexual immorality, flee. Head for the hills. Get as far away from this as you possibly can. Put on the filters. Break up and block her number. Relocate. Get away. Flee. 
And, and Paul ultimately gets to the heart of this. You and I, we, we are not our own. We, we were purchased at a price. The, the, the tortured, beaten, d- destroyed, so we could be made whole body of, of Jesus. But very simply, if what you are about to do is not going to honor the most high God who bought you with the blood of his son, then, then don't do that thing. Flee. God created you. He, he redeemed you. You don't belong to you. You belong to him. And, and let us not forget, because this can definitely get lost in translation in a message like this. <laughs> Y'all, God created sex. He, he could have just as easily come up with any way for us to procreate. And he came up with, well, the way that he did. And speaking as a married guy of 13 years, I will say, pretty great. God isn't anti-sex. In fact, quite the opposite. God is pro-sex within the boundaries that he established that will in turn lead to blessing and not pain. Remember, not prison bars, train tracks. Church, it's not lost on me that for a lot of people who are, who are seated here today, this is an incredibly difficult conversation. And, and the evil one, literally right now, is trying to whisper to you, you're too far gone. What, what you've done cannot be repaired. You will never be whole. You are outside of God's grace. You, you've wandered outside of God's design and all you feel is shame, embarrassment, and guilt. Look up right now. Lift your head, son and daughter of the Most High God. That is not from your Heavenly Father. God loves you. He is absolutely crazy about you. It's why he sent his one and only son. There's in fact nothing that you can do to get him to love you more and there's nothing you can do to get him to love you less. There's a story uh, a real-life event that's recorded for us in, in one of those biographical accounts of the life of Jesus where uh, Jesus goes to a well in the middle of the day, uh, typically when they were the least busy. And uh, there he encounters a, a, a Samaritan woman, which we don't have time to dive into all the cultural implications of that, but the idea that a rabbi that held the status that Jesus had would be talking to a woman, scandalous in and of itself, but the Jews and the Samaritans, they absolutely despised each other. I mean, this was a scandalous act that Jesus would even have a conversation with her. He starts with some small talk, and eventually, kind of out of nowhere, he says, hey, go get your husband. And she, you have to just imagine, buried in shame, doesn't even lift her head. She says, I, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right, you've had five. And now you have a living boyfriend. And, and right at the point where, where she probably figures that he's about to pour on guilt and shame and embarrassment and tell her what she's been doing is wrong, something so beautiful happens. Jesus looks at her with all the tenderness and love that you can possibly imagine and tell her, hey, you have been drinking from a well of sexuality as defined by culture. And as you know, it's never going to satisfy. But daughter of the most high God, I have living water. And she received it. She placed her identity in Jesus rather than her sexual desires, and she finally got to experience the life that God had waiting for her all along. And do you remember what happens next? This is so important. 
She goes into that hometown where everybody surely knows her reputation and she tells everyone what happened. And and that entire town comes out. That entire town is transformed. Don't miss this. God used the sexually broken, the identity that previously enslaved this woman for hope and redemption. And he wants to do the exact same thing for you. Your identity is not your past. It is not your sexuality. It is who Jesus says you are. What he declared over your life when he died for you. You are a child of the Most High God. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are good. You never give up on us. You never stop chasing us down. We thank you that we're never too gone, that even when the world deems like you're, you're outside, there's no way you could ever be forgiven. There's no way you could ever be redeemed. You say, no, 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 no. That's exactly why I sent my son. And so I, I, I pray this morning for the miraculous God that, that shame and embarrassment would fall off that your children would turn to you in in waves, trusting that at your feet they will find mercy and grace and forgiveness when we need it the most. You're good to us. We love you. We thank you for speaking to our hearts this morning. In your name we pray, amen.